Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back? Negotium Perambulans by E. F. Benson The casual tourist in West Cornwall may just possibly have noticed, as he bowled along over the bare high plateau between Penzance and Land's End, a dilapidated signpost pointing down a steep lane, and bearing on its battered finger the faded inscription, Polaen, two miles. But probably very few have had the curiosity to traverse those two miles in order to see a place to which their guidebooks award so cursory a notice. It is described there, in a couple of unattractive lines, as a small fishing village with a church of no particular interest except for certain carved and painted wooden panels originally belonging to an early edifice which form an altar rail. But the church at St. Creed, the tourist is reminded, has a similar decoration, far superior in point of preservation and interest, and thus even the ecclesiastically disposed are not lured to Polaire. So meagre a bait is scarce worth swallowing, and a glance at the very steep lane which in dry weather presents a carpet of sharp-pointed stones and after rain, a muddy watercourse, will almost certainly decide him not to expose his motor or his bicycle to risks like these, in so sparsely populated a district. Hardly a house has met his eye since he left Penzance, and the possible trundling of a punctured bicycle for half a dozen weary miles seems a high price to pay for the sight of a few painted panels. Polaire, therefore, even in the high noon of the tourist season, is little liable to invasion, and for the rest of the year I do not suppose that a couple of folk a day traverse those two miles, long ones at that, of steep and stony gradient. I am not forgetting the postman in this exiguous estimate, for the days are few when, leaving his pony and cart at the top of the hill, he goes as far as the village. Since but a few hundred yards down the lane there stands a large white box like a sea trunk by the side of the road, with a slit for letters and a locked door. Should he have in his wallet a registered letter, or be the bearer of a parcel too large for insertion in the square lips of the sea trunk, he must needs trudge down the hill and deliver the troublesome missive, leaving it in person on the owner and receiving some small reward of coin or refreshment for his kindness. But such occasions are rare, and his general routine is to take out of the box such letters as may have been deposited there and insert in their place such letters as he has brought. These will be called for, perhaps that day, or perhaps the next, by an emissary from the Polan post office. As for the fishermen of the place, who in their export trade constitute the chief link of movement between Polen and the outside world, they would not dream of taking their catch up the steep lane, and so with six miles farther of travel to the market at Penzance, the sea route is shorter and easier, and they deliver their wares to the pierhead. Thus, though the sole industry of Polen is sea-fishing, 
You will get no fish there unless you have bespoken your requirements to one of the fishermen. Back come the trawlers as empty as a haunted house, while their spoils are in the fish train that is speeding to London. Such isolation of a little community, continued as it has been for centuries, produces isolation in the individual as well, and nowhere will you find greater independence of character than among the people of Polen. But they are linked together, so it has always seemed to me, by some mysterious comprehension. It is as if they had all been initiated into some ancient rite, inspired and framed by forces visible and invisible. The winter storms that batter the coast, the vernal spell of the spring, the hot, still summers, the season of rains and autumnal decay, have made a spell which, line by line, has been communicated to them concerning the powers, evil and good, that rule the world, and manifest themselves in ways benignant or terrible. I came to Polen first at the age of ten, a small boy, weak and sickly, and threatened with pulmonary trouble. My father's business kept him in London, while for me the abundance of fresh air and a mild climate were considered essential conditions if I was to grow to manhood. His sister had married the vicar of Polan, Richard Belitho, himself native to the place, and so it came about that I spent three years as a paying guest with my relations. Richard Belitho owned a fine house in the place, which he inhabited in preference to the vicarage, which he let to a young artist, John Evans, on whom the spell of Polan had fallen. For, from year's beginning to year's end, he never left it. There was a solid-roofed shelter, open on one side to the air, built for me in the garden, and here I lived and slept, passing scarcely one hour out of the twenty-four behind walls and windows. I was out on the bay with the fisherfolk, or wandering along the gorse-clad cliffs that climbed steeply to the right and left of the deep coombe where the village lay, or pottering about on the pierhead, or birds nesting in the bushes with the boys of the village. Except on Sunday, and for the few daily hours of my lessons, I might do what I pleased, so long as I remained in the open air. About the lessons there was nothing formidable. My uncle conducted me through flowering bypaths among the thickets of arithmetic, and made pleasant excursions into the elements of Latin grammar, and above all, he made me daily give him an account in clear and grammatical sentences of what had been occupying my mind or my movements. Should I select to tell him about a walk along the cliffs, my speech must be orderly, not vague slipshod notes of what I had observed. In this way, too, he trained my observation, for he would bid me tell him what flowers were in bloom, and what birds hovered fishing over the sea, or were building in the bushes. For that I owe him a perennial gratitude, for to observe and to express my thoughts in the clear spoken word became my life's profession. But far more formidable than my weekday tasks was the prescribed routine for Sunday. Some dark embers compounded of Calvinism and mysticism smouldered in my uncle's soul, and it made it a day of terror. His sermon in the morning scorched us with a foretaste of the eternal fires reserved for unrepentant sinners, and he was hardly less terrifying at the children's service in the afternoon. 
Well do I remember his exposition of the doctrine of guardian angels. A child, he said, might think himself secure in such angelic care, but let him beware of committing any of those numerous offences which would cause his guardian to turn his face from him. For as sure as there were angels to protect us, there were also evil and awful presences which were ready to pounce, and on them he dwelt with peculiar gusto. Well, too, do I remember in the morning sermon his commentary on the carved panels of the altar rails to which I have already alluded. There was the angel of the Annunciation there, and the angel of the Resurrection, but not less was there the witch of Endor, and on the fourth panel a scene that concerned me most of all. This fourth panel, he came down from his pulpit to trace its time-worn features, represented the lich-gate of the churchyard of Polaen itself, and indeed the resemblance, when thus pointed out, was remarkable. In the entry stood the figure of a robed priest holding up a cross, with which he faced a terrible creature like a gigantic slug that reared itself up in front of him. That, so ran my uncle's interpretation, was some evil agency, such as he had spoken about to us children, of almost infinite malignity and power, which could alone be combated by firm faith and a pure heart. Below ran the legend Negotium Perambulans in Tenebris, from the 91st Psalm. We should find it translated there, the pestilence that walketh in darkness, which but feebly rendered the Latin. It was more deadly to the soul than any pestilence that can only kill the body. It was the thing, the creature, the business that trafficked in the outer darkness, a minister of God's wrath on the unrighteous. I could see as he spoke the looks which the congregation exchanged with each other, and knew that his words were evoking a surmise, a remembrance. Nods and whispers passed between them. They understood to what he alluded. And with the inquisitiveness of boyhood I could not rest till I had wormed the story out of my friends among the fisher-boys, as next morning we sat basking and naked in the sun after our bathe. One knew one bit of it, one another, but it pieced together into a truly alarming legend. In bald outline it was as follows. A church far more ancient than that in which my uncle terrified us every Sunday had once stood not three hundred yards away, on the shelf of level ground below the quarry from which its stones were hewn. The owner of the land had pulled this down and erected for himself a house on the same site out of these materials, keeping in a very ecstasy of wickedness the altar, and on this he dined and played dice afterwards. But as he grew old some black melancholy seized him, and he would have lights burning there all night, for he had a deadly fear of the darkness. On one winter evening there sprang up such a gale as was never before known, which broke in the windows of the room where he had supped and extinguished the lamps. Yells of terror brought in his servants, who found him lying on the floor with the blood streaming from his throat. 
As they entered, some huge black shadow seemed to move away from him, crawled across the floor and up the wall and out of the broken window. There he lay a dying, said the last of my informants, and him that had been a great burly man was withered to a bag of skin, for the critter had drained all the blood from him. His last breath was a scream, and he hollered out the same words as Parson read off the screen. The Gotium Perambulance in Tenebris, I suggested eagerly. Thereabouts. Latin, anyhow. And after that, I asked. Nobody would go near the place, and the old house rotted and fell in ruins till three years ago, when along comes Mr. Doolis from Penzance, and built the half of it up again. But he don't care much about such critters, nor about Latin neither. He takes his bottle of whiskey a day and gets drunk as a lord in the evening. Hey, I'm going home to my dinner. Whatever the authenticity of the legend, I had certainly heard the truth about Mr. Doolis from Penzance, who, from that day, became an object of keen curiosity on my part, the more so because the quarry house adjoined my uncle's garden. The thing that walked in the dark failed to stir my imagination, and already I was so used to sleeping alone in my shelter that the night had no terrors for me. But it would be intensely exciting to wake at some timeless hour and hear Mr. Doolis yelling and conjecture that the thing had got him. But by degrees the whole story faded from my mind, overscored by the more vivid interests of the day, and for the last two years of my outdoor life in the vicarage garden I seldom thought about Mr. Doolis and the possible fate that might await him for his temerity in living in the place where that thing of darkness had done business. Occasionally I saw him over the garden fence, a great yellow lump of a man, with slow and staggering gait, but never did I set eyes on him outside his gate, either in the village street or down on the beach. He interfered with none, and no one interfered with him. If he wanted to run the risk of being the prey of the legendary nocturnal monster, or quietly drink himself to death, it was his affair. My uncle, so I gathered, had made several attempts to see him when he first came to live at Polen, but Mr. Doolis appeared to have no use for Parsons, and said he was not at home, and never returned the call. After three years of sun, wind, and rain, I had completely outgrown my early symptoms and had become a tough, strapping youngster of thirteen. I was sent to Eton and Cambridge, and in due course ate my dinners and became a barrister. In twenty years from that time I was earning a yearly income of five figures and had already laid by in sound securities a sum that brought me dividends which would, for one of my simple tastes and frugal habits, supply me with all the material comforts I needed on this side of the grave. The great prizes of my profession were already within my reach, but I had no ambition beckoning me on, nor did I want a wife and children being, I must suppose, a natural celibate. In fact, there was only one ambition which through those busy years had held the lure of blue and far-off hills to me, and that was to get back to Polan and live once more isolated from the world with the sea and the gorse-clad hills for playfellows and the secrets that lurked there for exploration. 
The spell of it had been woven about my heart, and I can truly say that there had hardly passed a day in all those years of which the thought of it and the desire for it had been wholly absent from my mind. Though I had been in frequent communication with my uncle there during his lifetime, and after his death with his widow who still lived there, I had never been back to it since I embarked on my profession, for I knew that if I went there it would be a wrench beyond my power to tear myself away again. But I had made up my mind that when once I had provided for my own independence, I would go back there and not to leave it again. And yet, I did leave it again. And now, nothing in the world would induce me to turn down the lane from the road that leads from Penzance to the Land's End, and see the sides of the coombe rise steep above the roofs of the village, and hear the gulls chiding as they fish in the bay. One of the things invisible of the dark powers leaped into light, and I saw it with my eyes. The house where I had spent those three years of boyhood had been left for life to my aunt, and when I made known to her my intention of coming back to Pollen, she suggested that till I found a suitable house or found her proposal unsuitable, I should come to live with her. The house is too big for a lone old woman, she wrote, and I have often thought of quitting and taking a little cottage sufficient for me and my requirements. But come and share it, my dear, and if you find me troublesome, you or I can go. You may want solitude, most people in Polen do, and will leave me, or else I will leave you. One of the main reasons of my stopping here all these years was a feeling that I must not let the old house starve. Houses starve, you know, if they're not lived in. They die a lingering death. The spirit in them grows weaker and weaker, and at last fades out of them. Isn't this nonsense, your London notions? Naturally, I accepted the warmth of this tentative arrangement, and on an evening in June found myself at the head of the lane leading down to Polan, and once more I descended into the steep valley between the hills. Time had stood still apparently for the coombe. The dilapidated signpost, or its successor, pointed a rickety finger down the lane, and a few hundred yards farther on was the white box for the exchange of letters. Point after remembered point met my eye, and what I saw was not shrunk, as is often the case with the revisited scenes of childhood, into a smaller scale. There stood the post office, and there the church, and close beside it the vicarage, and beyond the tall shrubberies which separated the house for which I was bound from the road, and beyond that again the grey roofs of the quarry house, damp and shining with the moist evening wind from the sea. All was exactly as I remembered it, and above all, that sense of seclusion and isolation. Somewhere above the treetops climbed the lane which joined the main road to Penzance, but all that had become immeasurably distant. The years that had passed since last I turned in at the well-known gate faded like a frosty breath and vanished into this warm, soft air. There were law courts, somewhere in memory's dull book, which, if I cared to turn the pages, would tell me that I had made a name and a great income there. But the dull book was closed now, for I was back in Polan, and the spell was woven around me again. And if Polan was unchanged, so too was Aunt Hester, who met me at the door, 
Dainty and china-white she had always been, and the years had not aged but only refined her. As we sat and talked after dinner, she spoke of all that had happened in Polen in that score of years, and yet somehow the changes of which she spoke seemed but to confirm the immutability of it all. As the recollection of the names came back to me, I asked her about the quarry house and Mr. Doolis, and her face gloomed a little as with the shadow of a cloud on a spring day. Yes, Mr. Doolis, she said. Poor Mr. Doolis. How well I remember him, though it must be ten years and more since he died. I never wrote to you about it, for it was all very dreadful, my dear, and I didn't want to darken your memories of Pauline. Your uncle always thought that something of the sort might happen if he went on in his wicked, drunken ways, and worse than that. And though nobody knew exactly what took place, it was the sort of thing that might have been anticipated. But what more or less happened, Aunt Hester? I asked. Well, of course I can't tell you everything, for no one knew it. But he was a very sinful man, and the scandal about him at Newlyn was shocking. And then he lived, too, in the quarry house. I wonder if by chance you remember that sermon of your uncle's when he got out of the pulpit and explained that panel in the altar rails, the one I mean with a horrible creature rearing itself up outside the lich gate. Yes, I remember perfectly, said I. Ah, it made an impression on you, I suppose. And so it did on all who heard him. And that impression got stamped and branded on us all when the catastrophe occurred. Somehow Mr. Doolis got to hear about your uncle's sermon, and in some drunken fit he broke into the church and smashed the panel to atoms. He seems to have thought that there was some magic in it, and that if he destroyed that he would get rid of the terrible fate that was threatening him. For I must tell you that before he committed that dreadful sacrilege, he had been a haunted man. He hated and feared darkness, for he thought that the creature on the panel was on his track but that as long as he kept lights burning, it couldn't touch him. But the panel, to his disordered mind, was the root of his terror, and so, as I said, he broke into the church and attempted, you'll see why I said attempted, to destroy it. It certainly was found in splinters next morning, when your uncle went into church for matins, and knowing Mr. Doolis's fear of the panel, he went across to the quarry house afterwards and taxed him with its destruction. The man never denied it. He boasted of what he had done. There he sat, though it was early morning, drinking his whisky. I've settled your thing for you, he said, and your sermon too. A fig for such superstitions. Your uncle left him without answering his blasphemy, meaning to go straight into Penzance and give information to the police about this outrage to the church. But on his way back from the quarry house, he went into the church again. And there, in the screen, was the panel, untouched and uninjured. And yet he had himself seen it smashed. And Mr. Doolis had confessed that the destruction of it was his work. But there it was, and whether the power of God had mended it, or some other power, who knows? This was Pauline indeed, and it was the spirit of Pauline that made me accept all Aunt Hester was telling me as attested fact. It had happened like that. She went on in her quiet voice. Your uncle recognised that some power beyond police was at work, and he did not go to Penzance or give information about the outrage, for the evidence of it had vanished. A sudden spate of scepticism swept over me, 
There must have been some mistake, I said. It hadn't been broken. She smiled. Yes, my dear, but you have been in London so long, she said. Let me anyhow tell you the rest of my story. That night, for some reason, I couldn't sleep. It was very hot and airless. I dare say you'll think that the sultry conditions accounted for my wakefulness. Once and again, as I went to the window to see if I couldn't admit more air, I could see from it the quarry house, and I noticed the first time that I left my bed that it was blazing with lights. But the second time I saw that it was all in darkness, and as I wondered at that, I heard a terrible scream and the moment afterwards the steps of someone coming at full speed down the road outside the gate. He yelled as he ran, Light! Light! he called out. Give me light or it'll catch me! It was very terrible to hear that, and I went to rouse my husband who was sleeping in the dressing room across the passage. He wasted no time, but by now the whole village was aroused by the screams, and when he got down to the pier he found that it was all over. The tide was low, and on the rocks at its foot was lying the body of Mr. Dooless. He must have cut some artery when he fell on those sharp edges of stone, for he had bled to death, they thought. And though he was such a burly man, his corpse was but skin and bones. Yet there was no pool of blood around him such as you would have expected, just skin and bones as if every drop of blood in his body had been sucked out of him. She leaned forward. You and I, my dear, know what happened, she said, or at least can guess. God has his instruments of vengeance on those who bring wickedness into places that have been holy. Dark and mysterious are his ways. Now, what I should have thought of such a story if it had been told to me in London... I can easily imagine. There was such an obvious explanation. The man in question had been a drunkard. What wonder if the demons of delirium pursued him? But here, in Polan, it was different. And uh, who's in the quarry house now? I asked. Years ago, the fisher boys told me the story of the man who first built it and of his horrible end, and now again it has happened. Surely no one has ventured to inhabit it once more. I saw in her face, even before I asked that question, that somebody had done so. Yes, it's lived in again, said she, for there is no end to the blindness. I don't know if you remember him. He was a tenant of the vicarage many years ago. John Evans, said I. Yes, such a nice fellow he was too. Your uncle was pleased to get so good a tenant. And now... She rose. Aunt Hester, you shouldn't leave your sentences unfinished, I said. She shook her head. My dear, that sentence will finish itself. But what a time of night. I must go to bed, and you too, or they think we'll have to keep lights burning here through the dark hours. Before getting into bed, I drew my curtains wide and opened all the windows to the warm tide of the sea air that flowed softly in. Looking out into the garden, I could see in the moonlight the roof of the shelter in which for three years I had lived, gleaming with dew. That, as much as anything, brought back the old days to which I had now returned, and they seemed of one piece with the present, as if no gap of more than twenty years sundered them. The two flowed into one, like globules of mercury uniting into a softly shining globe of mysterious lights and reflections. Then, 
Raising my eyes a little, I saw against the black hillside the windows of the quarry house still alight. Morning, as is so often the case, brought no shattering of my illusion. As I began to regain consciousness, I fancied that I was a boy again, waking up in the shelter in the garden, and though as I grew more widely awake, I smiled at the impression, that on which it was based I found to be indeed true. It was sufficient now as then to be here, to wander again on the cliffs and hear the popping of the ripened seed pods on the gorse bushes, to stray along the shore to the bathing cove, to float and drift and swim in the warm tide and bask on the sand, and watch the gulls fishing, to lounge on the pierhead with the fisherfolk, to see in their eyes and hear in their quiet speech the evidence of secret things not so much known to them as part of their instincts and their very being. There were powers and presences about me. The white poplars that stood by the stream that babbled down the valley knew of them, and showed a glimpse of their knowledge sometimes like the gleam of their white underleaves. The very cobbles that paved the street were soaked in it. All that I wanted was to lie there and grow soaked in it too, unconsciously as a boy. I had done that, but now the process must be conscious. I must know what stir of forces, fruitful and mysterious, seethed along the hillside at noon and sparkled at night on the sea. They could be known, they could even be controlled by those who were masters of the spell, but never could they be spoken of, for they were dwellers in the innermost, grafted into the eternal life of the world. There were dark secrets as well in these clear, kindly powers, and to these no doubt belonged the negotium per ambulance in tenebris, which, though of deadly malignity, might be regarded not only as evil, but as the avenger of the sacrilegious and impious deeds. All this was part of the spell of Pollen, of which the seeds had lain long dormant in me. But now they were sprouting, and who knew what strange flower would unfold on their stems? It was not long before I came across John Evans. One morning, as I lay on the beach, there came shambling across the sand a man stout and middle-aged, with the face of Silenus. He paused as he drew near me and regarded me from narrow eyes. Why, you're the little chap that used to live in the parson's garden, he said. Don't you recognize me? I saw who it was when he spoke. His voice, I think, instructed me, and recognizing it, I could see the features of the strong, alert young man in this gross caricature. Yes, you're John Evans, I said. You used to be very kind to me. You used to draw pictures for me. So I did, and I'll draw you some more. Been bathing? That's a risky performance. You never know what lives in the sea, nor what lives in the land, for that matter. Not that I heed them. I stick to work and whiskey. God, I've learned to paint since I saw you. And drink, too, for that matter. I live in the quarry house, you know, and it's a powerful, thirsty place. Come and have a look at my things if you're passing. Staying with your aunt, are you? I could do a wonderful portrait of her. Interesting face. She knows a lot. People who live at Polan get to know a lot, though I don't take much stock in that sort of knowledge myself. I do not know when I've been at once so repelled and interested. Behind the mere grossness of his face there lurked something which, while it appalled, yet fascinated me. 
His thick, lisping speech had the same quality. And his paintings, what would they be like? I was just going home, I said. I'll gladly come in, if you'll allow me. He took me through the untended and overgrown garden into the house which I had never yet entered. A great grey cat was sunning itself in the window, and an old woman was laying lunch in a corner of the cool hall into which the door opened. It was built of stone, and the carved mouldings let into the walls. The fragments of gargoyles and sculptured images bore testimony to the truth of its having been built out of the demolished church. In one corner was an oblong and carved wooden table, littered with a painter's apparatus and stacks of canvases leaned against the walls. He jerked his thumb towards the head of an angel that was built into the mantelpiece and giggled. Quite a sanctified air, he said, so we tone it down for the purposes of ordinary life by a different sort of art. Have a drink? No? Well, turn over some of my pictures while I put myself to rights. He was justified in his own estimate of his skill. He could paint, and apparently he could paint anything. But never have I seen pictures so inexplicably hellish. There were exquisite studies of trees, and you knew that something lurked in the flickering shadows. There was a drawing of his cat sunning itself in the window, even as I had just now seen it, and yet it was no cat, but some beast of awful malignity. There was a boy stretched naked on the sands, not human, but some evil thing which had come out of the sea. Above all, there were pictures of his garden, overgrown and jungle-like, and you knew that in the bushes were presences ready to spring out on you. Well, do you like my style? he said, as he came up, glass in hand. The tumbler of spirits that he held had not been diluted. I try to paint the essence of what I see, not the mere husk and skin of it, but its nature, where it comes from, and what gave it birth. There's much in common between a cat and a fuchsia bush, if you look at them closely enough. Everything came out of the slime of the pit, and it's all going back there. I should like to do a picture of you some day. I'd hold the mirror up to nature, as that old lunatic said. After this first meeting, I saw him occasionally throughout the months of that wonderful summer. Often he kept to his house and his painting for days together, and then perhaps some evening I would find him lounging on the pier, always alone, and every time we met thus the repulsion and interest grew, for every time he seemed to have gone farther along a path of secret knowledge towards some evil shrine where complete initiation awaited him. And then, suddenly, the end came. I had met him thus one evening on the cliffs while the October sunset still burned in the sky, but over it with amazing rapidity there spread from the west a great blackness of cloud, such as I have never seen for denseness. The light was sucked from the sky, the dusk fell in ever thicker layers. He suddenly became conscious of this. I must get back as quick as I can, he said. It'll be dark in a few minutes, and my servant's out. The lamps won't be lit. He stepped out with extraordinary briskness for one who shambled and could scarcely lift his feet, and soon broke out into a stumbling run. In the gathering darkness I could see that his face was moist with the dew of some unspoken terror. 
You must come with me, he panted, for so we shall get the lights burning the sooner. I cannot do without light. I had to exert myself to the full to keep up with him, for terror winged him, and even so I fell behind, so that when I came to the garden gate he was already halfway up the path to the house. I saw him enter, leaving the door wide, and found him fumbling with matches, but his hand so trembled that he could not transfer the light to the wick of the lamp. But what's the hurry about? I asked. Suddenly his eyes focused themselves on the open door behind me, and he jumped from his seat beside the table which had once been the altar of God, with a gasp and a scream. No, no, keep it off! I turned and saw what he had seen. The thing had entered, and now was swiftly sliding across the floor towards him like some gigantic caterpillar. A stale, phosphorescent light came from it, for though the dusk had grown to blackness outside, I could see it quite distinctly in the awful light of its own presence. From it, too, there came an odour of corruption and decay, as from slime that has long lain below water. It seemed to have no head, but on the front of it was an orifice of puckered skin which opened and shut and slavered at the edges. It was hairless and slug-like in shape and in texture. As it advanced, its forepart reared itself from the ground like a snake about to strike, and it fastened on him. At that sight, and with the yells of his agony in my ears, the panic which had struck me relaxed into a hopeless courage, and with palsied, impotent hands I tried to lay hold of the thing, but I could not. Though something material was there, it was impossible to grasp it. My hands sunk in it as in thick mud. It was like wrestling with a nightmare. I think that but a few seconds elapsed before all was over. The screams of the wretched man sank to moans and mutterings as the thing fell on him. He panted once or twice, and was still. For a moment longer, there came gurglings and sucking noises, and then it slid out even as it had entered. I, I lit the lamp which he had fumbled with, and there, on the floor, he lay. No more than a rind of skin in loose folds over projecting bones. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was Negotium Perambulance by E. F. Benson. And it was originally published in November 1922 in Hutchinson's magazines, uh, magazine. And I got this from his collection, Visible and Invisible, which is available as a free ebook from the Gutenberg uh, Project. And if you've never come across that, well, I've probably mentioned them a load of times before, they're definitely worth going. That and archive.org, you can pick up all sorts of old. Um, horror and ghost stories. We've said something about E.F. Benson many times before. He was a very successful novelist. He had two brothers and a sister who was an artist. Uh, two brothers were um, writers. A.C. Benson, we did a, one of his stories, Basil Netherby. 
His other brother, R.H., became a Catholic priest. The Bensons' family, their father was um, Archbishop of Canterbury, which was the leading the leading uh, bishop, Archbishop in the Church of England. His father was Edward White Benson, born in York in 1802 and died in Birmingham. So uh, Edward White Benson, the Archbishop, was born in the Midlands. Uh, the father, that is E.F.'s grandfather, was a fellow of the Royal Botanical Society of Edinburgh and the author of books on education and religion and also an inventor whose inventions made considerable fortunes for others although not for him, although they clearly had some money put aside. The um, the one we're focusing on is E.F. Benson. We've done a number of stories of his before. I'm not going to say too much about him. He was a confirmed bachelor all his life. He moved in high society, really, and uh, his Map and Lucia novels make fun of that that kind of society. He belongs to a world where of gentlemen who do not work for a living, and uh, they spend their time in house parties and going taking fishing in Scotland or in the chalk streams of southern England. So this is his life. He's, I think Benson, I think, in this story in particular, sorry, my dog Jasper just came up to see me. He's, he's having to lie down now. I don't know where his sister is. We've been to Puppy Obedience this morning, so first class, first day at school, and they met a lot of other puppies, and they were very excited. But they were good dogs, And uh, but we have a way to go. I include the puppy interlude, even though it's out of place, because I have a strict way of doing these things. First of all, I read the story. Then I say something about the story and potentially the author, look at the themes of the story. And then I kind of uh, drift off into uh, babble about my personal life, which has been called incoherent waffle. And uh, a number of people on the internet have advised that this need not be listened to. Can you imagine? And all I would say was that, you know, one man's incoherent waffle is another man's poison or bread or one of those. Anyway, so that is a, that is a, um, is that a biblical quote? This is what they call a segue in radio. So what is the title? Isn't that weird? I, when I came across it first, I thought, uh, that's a weird title. So let's analyze it. So it means the, the pestilence that walketh in darkness. So the, the full sentence is, so it's from the 91st Psalm the Vulgate version. So you may know that the Vulgate was the original translation of the Bible into Latin from Greek. The Greek version was the Septuagint. And of course, originally, lots of the New Testament was actually written in Greek, but the older older parts, the Older Testament was written in Hebrew. So it was all translated into Latin and in the, into the Vulgate. And the, a little bit of a mistake was made in, and, and he actually alludes to this. If you listen to him, he's, he, he knows his Latin. So, negotium per ambulance in tenebris. So, in tenebris is really easy. In darkness, in its um, dative plural. So, in tenebris, in the darknesses. So, it's, it's actually plural. Um, and negotium means, they've translated it as pestilence, but it doesn't really mean pestilence. It means business. Negotium means business, and it's it's formed of otium, which is leisure, and neg, which negates it, and per, per ambulance is through walking, you know, an ambulance to ambulate, circambulate, ambulatory, you know, it's about walking, isn't it? So uh, originally it means the business that walks in darkness, but it, when it was translated into English, it got this uh, mistranslation, although probably the mistranslation dates back to the Latin, because clearly in the Latin... This is Jasper playing with his squeaky toy. I think I need to take it off him. After only one puppy obedience lesson, Jasper has put down his squeaky toy and left. 
Anyway, let me quote you from the Latin only because I like Latin. So, non timebis atimore nocturno, asagita volante in die, anegotio perambulante in tenebris, ab incursu et demonio meridiano. Do not be frightened of the things of night, the terrors of night, or the arrows that fly in the day, or of the um, business that walks in the darkness, or of the incursions of the midday um, demon. So basically saying, just chill, it's fine. Although, in this story, it was not fine. So that we should, this is um, false advice, really. I wanted to actually say, I don't know if you're familiar with Encrypted Horror, which is a YouTube channel which was run by Jasper Lestrange. Now, Jasper's been, I don't know him personally, but he is he's, he's gone for about six months and he hasn't put anything up. And I hope he's well, because he does a really good version of this. So why did you do it, Tony Walker? Well, I did it just because I like the story. Uh, and I wanted to do a compendium of E.F. Benson's stories. And I thought, well, I can hardly leave this one out. There are a couple of others that I should have done as well. Um, so... Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, was a big fan of this story, and it is quite Lovecraftian, isn't it? Evil beings, nameless, proto-slug, weird things. Um, so it says, well, I've done a bit of research in my notes, say the story incorporates themes found in early weird fiction, proto-Lovecraftian tales. It explores the connection between the people and their environment, the presence of hidden supernatural forces, and the transformation of a beloved place into one of horror, uh, however, some critics find the plot to be relatively basic and suggested further exploration of the psychological impact and consequences of the transformation could have enhanced the story. Fair enough. So, um, of course, we have, perhaps inspired by this, is the Dunwich Horror, which is uh, Lovecraft's story, you know, this remote coastal town where things go on. And I think there's this idea that, that you find in folk horror as well, that um, these remote parts of the world things lurk this was a common theme in the 20th century we get like the witch cult in western europe which was written by margaret murray and purported that there was a a pagan rather than a satanic cult of remnants of pre-christian religion i think that's been pretty much debunked now when i was away one night we listened to a talk given by gresham college on the internet by uh, Ron, professor ronald hutton who's the expert in these matters write some great books about all of this kind of thing. And uh, it, the title of the talk was uh, how, how Pagan Was Medieval Britain? And it turns out it wasn't really. And there were kind of folk magic things going on, but these are not kind of um, remnants of an ancient, cohesive, pre-Christian religion. They were just kind of often created on the trot. It's like I was reading about mumming, you know, mummers' plays, which, again, people had thought had... Uh, survivals from ancient pre prehistoric or pre um, pre dark age pre christian religion and it turns out they were you know kind of just a feature of the 18th century so so there we are things are not as old as you like to believe but this theme of the remote place where the the inhabitants are closer to nature but for both good and bad and they are portrayed that way, aren't they? Not, not unsympathetically, I think, his, his portrayal of the ordinary Cornish people uh, is not unsympathetic. He could have, and I think people like M.R. James, to be fair, will often use ordinary 
working people as caricatures. And, and even Tolkien does that as well, of course. You know, think of the uh, Sam Gamgee, again, not unkindly drawn, and the gaffer. But, you know, they are the mechanicals of Shakespeare, aren't they? But I don't think, although there's a hint of that really in that, they're not seen to be the intellectual or cultural equivalents of EF and his mates. But uh, anyway, that's a digression, I think. So, yes, this idea that remote, and it's the staple of folk horror, you know, the Wicker Man, etc., which the 2015 uh, New England story. I've just done another E.F. Benson story. I've just re-recorded The Room in the Tower. And that is also a proto-vampire story in that, you know, there's this woman in there, no spoilers, who's probably a vampire. I think I just spoiled it for you. And um, uh, and in this case, both the uh, the Mr. Doolis and uh, what's his name, Evans, the painter, are drained of blood. So there's something in that vampiric, isn't there? The blood is the life. We should say that Pollen isn't real, although people have suggested it's somewhere like Mausel. Yeah, maybe. Mausel lies uh, two miles along the coast road from Penzance, and Mausel Lane appears to run through a shallow valley, which maybe the Coombe referred to. Maybe, maybe not. One thing that struck me was the animistic feeling the man gets. He loves being, and one of the reasons he's left London and his successful career is to be among nature again, because he gets this real sense of life and so the both the ordinary people who live there and the setting itself the gorse the sea the seagulls the woods the uh, cliffs above they all are have this this animistic vibrancy so they're alive the nature is alive there but i, I think um at the risk of being jungian again the the unconscious if you like so basically what I'm saying is that this represents... Let's, let's have an Arthurian gallop off to the side here. So basically there's an Arthurian story where there are the nymphs of the... This creates the wasteland. So there are the nymphs of the wells or the fountains, and this represents the a living relationship with the earth and with nature, which is um, vivifying for people. It makes our lives alive. We're not... We're not cut off from our reality. Nature is not disenchanted. We are we are living in the prelapsarian garden of Eden before we learned the... I'm, I'm mixing my religions here, but, um, you know, the difference between right and wrong before we ate from the tree of knowledge, which we were told not to do. So in the Arthurian story, what happens is these knights who are very hubristic, they believe they're just naughty, let's just say, and they kill the nymphs. And, of course, after that... The land dies and they, it becomes a wasteland and this can be seen as being symbolic of us being cut off from T.S. Eliot's story, uh, poem The Wasteland, of course, which I've done on my classic poetry channel. Look at the bottom. Go to my YouTube channel. Look at the bottom. You'll find it there. Classic poetry. It's one of the, there's a few channels we also like and that's my classic poetry channel. I only say that because people ask me how to find it. Um, and so what we're saying is we can have a relationship with nature which is invigorating. It makes us feel alive. It makes us feel we're home. Yeah, But also within that live life-giving, there is death-giving. And so nature is both, it keeps us alive and it kills us. So it, it's, it, it can be personified as the devouring mother. The mother who gives us life also takes us back into, consumes us as the grave in the end, you know. And so um, I think there's something of that going on here. 
that yes, this place, Polen, is for our man a place of kind of innocent beauty. Like the Garden of Eden, there are no tigers in the Garden of Eden. There is a snake, though. So what's a snake doing in the Garden of Eden? So there is evil even in the Garden of Eden, isn't there? So And um, and in Polen, that's true as well. And in this case, it is a kind of... Um, and I think also, when things get deeper down in the unconscious, they're undifferentiated. So they are... Uh, they have they are less distinct and so this thing is it seems some kind of a slug and to us of course slugs are they're not distinct they don't have i mean you may say they do have obvious body parts but they look all jelly like and they they appear all to be of one thing and then a little minute later some awful feelers come out and uh, there is some kind of mouth thing but it's not at all obvious at, at the beginning so i think um pollen is both is paradise and hell at the same time in an undifferentiated uh, way? And of course, Jung, he was a, he was a Swiss man. So when he went to Africa, he had certain views about Africa. But what he says is that um, and, and, and that the during the day, the the uh, tribes people he was with were happy, jolly, friendly, and but during the night they were terrified of the dark. Now whether that's true or not, I don't know. But what it suggests is that it, it does have that two sides. And like dogs, they are over the moment. So when it's sunny, we're all happy. When it's not, we our happiness is utterly forgotten and we're bathed in terror. So other themes, of course, are so the power of belief and perception. The story explores the power of belief and how it shapes one's perception of reality. The villagers of Polen have a tacit understanding of the forces at play, both good and evil. They know which influences their worldview and actions. The narrator's own perception is influenced by the beliefs of those around him and it affects how he interprets the events unfolding in the village. But also because he's an outsider, and this is really important, he sees these things in a different way. He sees these things in a different way as well. They are like the dog. Uh, they, they just accept it. It is blissful, it is paradise, and it is hell as well. But uh, and that's just the way it is, and they don't question it; they just live with it in the moment. But he, as an outsider, here's me. Other dog come. This is little Ruby. Excuse me. Oh, they both come up. Squeaky toys. Hang on a second. You don't get that on the BBC, do you? So I had to have a little pause and to just make a fuss of them because they've come all the way to the top of the house, and they don't massively like it up here because it's really hot. Um, it's at the top of the house. It's three floors up. Everything heats up. At the moment, it's twenty-six point seven degrees uh, centigrade. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's a lot. And it gets hotter. It gets 30-odd up here sometimes. So in, in the summer, I record... Anyway, you don't want to know what I look like when I record. Uh, in the winter, I'm swaddled up because it gets really cold because there's not a massive amount of... Uh, um, it, it, I was going to say insurance, but I don't mean that. I mean insulation. Anyway, they've come up. They're having a lie down. They're having a little fight. So if you see any... If you hear any growling, it, it isn't as bad as it sounds. It's all in play. Don't worry. So... The, the, my notes suggest there's something about obsession. I actually, I actually think what it's more like is um, we've read a lot of stories, full circle of, of houses. There was one recently we did that, that in, infect the character. And this is actually more common than I ever thought. I, I wasn't aware of this, but the more stories I've read, I've read it's, not an, it's not an uncommon theme whereby a place... It affects the personality of the person living in it. And so we don't know what Doolis was like when he came, 
and and ended up in this house that was sacrilegious because it was built from a church so it defiled the church in the sense and of course there's that issue of retribution because i always say about you know certainly on one level stories are moral tales generally moral tales um they help us t- know how we should behave and we shouldn't be our way of believing was that we shouldn't des- desecrate churches probably most of us many of us still believe that um but uh, people did do it and he did it and he got his come up and says his do list and then um what's his name evans goes there and also um yes it's the basil netherby story as well whereby he goes to the house in basil netherby and is possessed by the the uh, what would you call him loose living squire who lived there before who uh, and but as a gift this is basil netherby he he creates fantastic artwork as well so it's it is that ambivalence of the unconscious if you like which if we let it possess us, it is both good and bad if we live in it rather than let it possess us. Although that's a related idea. I had another interruption again, I'm afraid. And as I say, this does not happen to professional podcasters. So Sheila came up with Noah. Now Noah is her grandson. And he's kind of like he'd be my step-grandson, I think. It's hard to work these things out. He, he's her son's who I'm not his... I'm not Ryan's dad, obviously, you know, we're a, a later life relationship. So, but Noah has come to stay. And it, so everybody was up here. Noah was up here and the two dogs are up here. Noah was very interested in the dogs. I showed Noah my my lava lamp and my collection of crystal skulls. And he seemed quite interested. He was pretty interested in the dogs. But it diverted me from these really important, deep thoughts, except to say what is more important what we're talking about in these thoughts is life and what all these artists are trying to do is connect us to a more authentic life if you like not every artist does that but i think that's the purpose of art is to give us a connection to all of this is around us and uh, so to have a little boy and two pups that is what life's about not even that is what life's about. That is life. Funnily enough, talking about things like that. So I've got, I'm on, on a ran, ramble now. So basically, the other day, I went out the back with our two, and there was Lucifer Sam, who's uh, he's not a Siam cat, if you know the Pink Floyd song. He's a black cat. And I was trying to get Lucifer and Shade, who is my pup's mum, to be friends, but it didn't work out. And, and so this time, my dogs went out, and Lucifer looked at them. And Jasper and Ruby looked at him, and there was mutual, neither were interested in each other, you know. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then another day, they've got another cat, the people who have Lucifer, they have one called Jasper, who's the same name as my dog. And he's a kind of a tomcat, and he spends his uh, time, there's some waste ground behind us, and a scrapyard. And he spends his time, his owner tells me, hunting for rats in the scrapyard. So he's a tom, he's a tough guy. And uh, that was an interesting thing. So Jasper, the cat, sat out, and he was looking at my two. And my two looked at him, and they weren't massively interested. My two dogs looked at him. Now, and I was pleased about that, because I, I want everybody to, to be friends. But I was thinking, like, if th- that had been a dog, they would have gone up to say hello, because they like other dogs. And if it had been a person, they would have gone up to say hello, because they like people. And if it had been a rabbit, or a squirrel, or a rat, 
or a bird, they would run after it because they would have been prey. So clearly they know that a cat is not a dog and it's not a person, but it's not prey either. And in their young lives, they that that's the end of their interest. It doesn't fit any category that they can give anything in the cat himself. So in a sense, I thought it was a nice outcome, but it it is interesting to kind of try and infer what they think about things. I should say, sometimes when I do these commentaries afterwards, I think, yeah, that kind of hung together. I made some kind of point there. And then I think, uh, and then other ones, I think, no, that was just a heap. And this is a heap. But I just did want to say something. Again, another favourite resource of mine is a website called TV Tropes. So TV Tropes is um, a collection of all the different tropes you may come across in stories. And th- this is one called Campbell Country. And and it's for horror that uses Britain as a setting. Rural areas are the most common, but urban settings, especially in decrepit, neglected neighbourhoods and or in gothic depictions of Victorian London, aren't unheard of. There's a decent amount of precedent for this. The rain, fog and lonely moors all give the setting a nice creepy feel. And as this old saying goes, this is great, I'd never heard this before, an Englishman thinks a hundred miles is a long way, while an American thinks a hundred years is a long time. Absolutely. So for me, like a hundred miles, oof, long way. A hundred years, yeah, it's nothing much. Uh, whereas, you know, the other way around. So in other words, England is a much smaller country with a much longer history. It's therefore easier to believe that an English village was the site of some dreadful secret dating back to medieval Roman or pagan times. So they talk about how it relates to other tropes. So the rural variants of this trope tend to overlap with hillbilly horrors is another one. I suppose that's deliverance, isn't it? From similar settings in the Deep South, the Wild West and Ruritania, Southern Gothic, Weird West and Überwald in Germany. Uh, So there we are. So people have been quite critical of this story, saying it doesn't doesn't, um, unload well. That's a term of art, I think. Uh, But... To me, it's a really good, effective story. I love that animistic sense of the setaway place that is full of both terrible evil and good. I think this idea of retribution, remember this guy was from a very Christian family, so the idea that if you desecrate the church, something's going to come and get you, and the use of a quote from a psalm ties in very well with that. But to me, like with the best of E.F. Benson's stuff, which is like the best of M.R. James's stuff, you, it, it isn't explained fully. And I, I've repeated this so many times. If you want to write a really scary story, you put something in and don't explain it. Now, there are many people who don't like that. Many readers want everything tied up. But the point is this, and I've said this before many times, the trouble with the vampire now is it's too well known. We know. We just, we're able to categorise it. And as soon as we categorise it and put it away, it's safe. It's made safe. So we go through, I was reading, I wasn't, this was on a podcast, about Ian McGilchrist, who's a psychiatrist who lives currently on the Alice Guy, and he wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary, which discusses the different functions of the left brain and the right brain. Apparently the, uh, the idea that the two brain hemispheres have different functions goes back to a guy called Sperry. So Roger Sperry did experiments in the 50s and 60s on cats, monkeys and humans to uh, where he basically had the people with split brains and animals with split brains. There's a thing called the corpus callosum that connects the two hemispheres and he would cut that and uh, discovered that um, different sides of the brain had different functions. This is taken up by McGilchrist. But I suppose I was most uh, introduced to this idea, the work of Valconan Goldberg, 
who was uh, born in Riga in 1946, but I think he's American, became an American, and he studied at Moscow State University under Alexander Lurie, who was a massively in- influential neuropsychologist. So I remember studying him when I was doing my psychology degree. Um, anyway, so uh, basically, the right side of the brain is responsible for generating scenarios, usually doom-laden scenarios. So the less you know about something the more scary it is. So you, you're in a haunted house, you open a door, you're in a, a house that is very ominous, and you open a door into a room, you don't know what's in that room, your right brain is generating all sorts of scenarios. Jordan Peterson talked about this, and this is how I came to know about O'Connor Goldberg. So I studied Luria. I didn't study Goldberg during my degree. So uh, just to be clear, because I think that was not clear when I said it. So what I'm saying here is, The unknown is always associated with anxiety. When it becomes known and wrapped up, oh, vampire, vampire, uh, they can't see themselves in mirrors, they can't cross running water, they have to be invited into a house, oh, we're fine, werewolf, fine, they only come out of the full moon, Uh, a silver bullet will do for them, so we're fine. But if you have things that are not explained and not detailed, that preserves the unknown aspect and makes them scarier. Uh, we, we, yeah, and that, and that is one of the key things of making scary stories. I think to have unknown. We all know the greater the the greater. So, for example, somebody. This I can't remember. This is somebody else's theory. But say you are going on a long journey and you've got your car and uh, everything's sorted. You need to be there by in ten hours' time. You're going to travel three hundred miles and you've got your route sorted out and it's on. And then everything's fine. You're not at all anxious. And then the car breaks down. Woof, anxiety occurs, then stress occurs. Uh, And it's because you had mapped everything. Everything was under control, no anxiety. Then suddenly it is no longer under control, much anxiety. So the unknown inevitably creates anxiety. And this is used in writing ghost stories and horror stories by not explaining. We don't see the monster the less we see of the monster, the scarier it is. The less we know about these odd things M.R. James uses with great success. And I think E.F. Benson, when he's at his best, does the same thing. The, um, he, he has a tendency to, to tie up more than uh, James. James will just let a whistle and I'll come to you. I use that a lot because I think it's a really scary story. Uh, it, it's, a lot of it's just mysterious. There are hints to, as to what it might mean, um, but... There is no tying up, whereas old EF, he will tend to tie up, even in The Room in the Tower, which is fairly, it's bizarre. There's a lot of bizarre, inexplicable, dreamlike features to it, but he ties it up. It's a vampire. Ah, oh, fine. There we are. You know, and, he, and, he, and this, in this story here, this slug thing is... Ah, it's an agent of retribution. It is the thing that the Bible told us about, the pestilence that walketh in darkness, you know. Uh, it is the thing that will come and get you if you are sacrilegious. There are some unexplained things, such as how does the property change the personality of the people who inhabit it, making them desperate drunkards who are terrified of the dark. It, that's not explained. But the, the monster is explained, and I think in a sense... Um, what is preserved about the fear of the monster is it's um, it's amorphous. So w- what is it? It's a sluggy thing. It, what is a slug? And that has, uh, you know, what like I'm saying, it's amorphous. It's, it's not tied down. So that, and I've laboured this point, but 
one of the reasons that makes stories scary is the unknown. And as soon as we start to categorize, conceptualize, put things in a box, they're no longer scary. We feel we can pretty much deal with them. And I was mentioning El Conan Goldberg's theory because he says the right brain is the part of the brain that does that. It deals with the unknown, the novel, and it generates scenarios. And, uh, and they are associated with negative emotion and particularly anxiety. So uh, that's why I delved into right brain, left, left brain. I didn't in any sense do justice to um, Ian McGilchrist's um, theories and his book, the, the, um, which I, I haven't read, but I, I, I will do, uh, is The Master and His Emissary, which is, you, should, you can pick him up talking to various people on the internet at the moment. So uh, he's probably worth a listen, if you're interested in that kind of thing. If you just want to go to sleep, then, um, then maybe it'll help you go to sleep. You don't know. Anyway, that's about it, really. Ramble, ramble, ramble. More incoherent than most. Perhaps I'm becoming less coherent as I go on. Um, that's something to ponder. Let me know. Um, what else am I doing? I'm, I'm doing a course. I, I have some modesty about this. Honestly, I think, well, who, who the heck am I? Uh, somebody suggested to me, Sonnet Likely, um, I don't know if that's a real name, suggested that I do a course on how to write a ghost story. And I thought, well, oh, you know, I thought, A, it might be a way of making some money, being straight with you. And um, B, who am I to write that? And then I thought, well, do you know, I've written a few and I've good, bad or indifferent. People seem to quite like them. And the uh, I've read a ton of them, a metric ton of them. Uh, so I, I, maybe I do know something about it anyway, but oh, you shall see. I like to prefer, I prefer to be a joint amateur in this sense with you, a lover and a, and a practitioner and a, an explorer of these things rather than setting myself up as an expert. But we'll see how that gets on. I've done the first lesson. There's plenty of stuff to do. Ah, and that kind of ties in with the last thing. So somebody suggested I do more of my own stories, and I, I, I've, I've mixed thoughts about this. I like doing them. I like when people like them, of course. That was the original purpose of me setting up this podcast, was to kind of smuggle my own stories in so people would then go out and buy them. But that that didn't happen massively. But um, people seem to like the stories, so... What do you think? Uh, let me know. Comment if, you th- if you'd like to hear more of my own work. Um, comment. And also probably comment if you don't, because if, if it's just the people who, who say yes, then I'm going to think, well, everybody thinks yes. But um, in fact, if there's a whole bunch of people saying no, then, you know, just put a comment. Oh, and the other thing, how these things go. My podcast host is Buzzsprout. And I quite like them. I do like them. No problems with it at all. They're good. And they've just um, introduced the possibility of doing members-only stuff. So previously, our Apple allowed me to do that, and, and um, uh, YouTube allowed me to do it. And I was doing it on Substack and on Patreon, all the same story. So once a month, I do a members-only story, and I, and I I'm now able to do it on Buzzsprout as well, so people can uh, sub up there. Uh, it's the same price on, on pretty much all the platforms. I, I don't really mind which you do if you want to support me and get the get the exclusive stuff. And it is it is probably more modern writers or horror stories than I'm doing. But, you know, somebody didn't like me doing that. But then I think, you know, one of the lessons from life is you can't please everybody. And if you try, you'll run yourself ragged. 
So that is available now um, as, and it will come up on the first of the month when you go to tune in to your podcast. And if you're not a member, it'll be like members only. And that's just the way of it. And I suppose what I'm hoping is that you'll go, oh, do you know what? I really want to hear that story if you're not a member. And you go, I'm going to become a member. Um, just, just to, I mean, I have, I think, 119 members on YouTube and 286 on Patreon and, and a much smaller number on Substack. I don't know what the number is on Apple, but it's not huge. Uh, but yet, you know, over Christmas, there were 250,000 listens to my stories, which is immense. But, you know, it's most of it is um, an act of, what do I want to say? Goodwill to the world. So if you could support me, that would be absolutely splendid. Anyway, there we are. That was a call to action of sorts. I think I'll go down and see the dogs in Noah now. I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.